Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest in our series of Agenda 2021 podcasts in which we try to look at what might be ahead for the United States in terms of policy or what should be ahead for the United States, particularly in the event that we have an administration change come January. We're very fortunate to be joined for this conversation by Jason Furman, who's a professor of the practice of economic policy jointly at the Harvard Kennedy School and at the Department of Economics at Harvard. Uh, Jason spent eight years as a top economic advisor to President Obama, including serving as the 28th chair of the Council of Economic Advisors from August 2013 to January 2017. And also joining Jason and I for this conversation is our friend and colleague, Ed Luce, uh, associate editor of the Financial Times and a columnist I know all of you read regularly. Uh, Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Morning. Uh, So, Uh, Our focus here is to look at the economic situation we're in now and to look ahead to what might be required from a policy perspective, from a political perspective, going into the campaign and after. Let me turn to you, Ed. Perhaps you have a a kickoff question for Jason. Thanks, uh, David, and great to see you, uh, Jason. Um, uh, and I, I'd love to ask about what you would advise the Biden campaign to do and, and how you would like to see it operate where, where it to become an administration. But um, l- l- let's just start with this week. We, we've seen the NASDAQ today, Wednesday, go through 10,000. The Dow has wiped out all its losses. It's where it is roughly where it was at the beginning of this year. Um, uh, in the same week that um, we find out the recession actually began in February. Um, there seems to be a massive disconnect between what equity valuations are telling us and what most people and most consumers are feeling. How, how do you see the market? Is it, is, it, does it, is it pricing in something that we don't know or that we're undervaluing? Yeah, so the market is not the economy, as we all know really well. There's some factors that partly explain away the disconnect between what people are feeling and what the market is doing. For example, the market is heavier in tech stocks. The market is responding to the fact that the Fed has taken away a lot of the left tail risk. And interest rates are lower. That always makes stock prices higher because it it lowers the discount rate. So that explains some of the disconnect. But at this point, it seems clear that the market is expecting a faster economic recovery than I think most economic forecasters are. 
and is looking to a world where things are a lot more normal a year from now than you know I would personally expect. Um, maybe, maybe they're right and, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, to some degree, it seems to me the market is pricing in not, not just a faster recovery, but a, implicitly, therefore, a, a quicker collapse in social distancing, because that's sort of key to so much growth, right? It's, it's the consumer-facing end of the economy that's been hit hardest. Um, so what the market might be celebrating is something we perhaps ought to be treating with great circumspection, if not fear. Yeah, that's right. And you you look at it in the first quarter of this year, for example, or the first half of this year, based on the data we have, the United States experienced a smaller decline in GDP than Europe did. In part, that's for good reasons. We had more fiscal stimulus. But in part, it reflects the fact that the lockdowns were less extensive in the United States. That means we now have more cases and are on a worse trajectory than is the case for Europe. And at a minimum, that will mean a lot of lives lost and potentially you know, a slower easing of social distancing or a second wave where we return to social distancing and thus worse economic performance for the second half of the year. So right now, it's not clear whether you want a better economy um, or you know, to make an investment in a better economy in the future by having done a little bit less upfront. Well, let's just play that out a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the period between now and the election. Um, uh, The market seems to be optimistic. You've given some reasons why one might be a little more cautious. We had one of your colleagues on, Ricardo Hausman, uh, earlier this week, uh, and we were talking about the degree to which the crisis elsewhere in the world um, is likely to be quite deep and quite unlike past crises. Um, particularly in places like Latin America and in uh, Africa, um, also see a rapid uh, spread and deepening of the COVID crisis in those places and a resurgence of it in some places here in the U.S. Now, if you combine all of that and what you've just said, the outlook is, 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 is pretty grim. Uh, And it suggests that at some point or another, the market's going to grow skittish about this, and you could have a downturn there. Are you generally pessimistic about the period between now and the election? Uh, Because I also have seen some comments from you that suggest there might be some degree of recovery, which might create the illusion of an improving situation when things are actually still pretty lousy. Yeah. My, my mental model, David, is that this is playing out in three acts. The first act is output collapsed. That's behind us. The second act is a partial rebound, which is where people go back to their old jobs, business that was shut down reopens. During the partial rebound phase, you would expect very, very fast growth, something like the two and a half million jobs we saw in the month of May. But that only takes us, let's say, and I don't know the precise fraction, no one does, halfway back. So we gained back 10 million jobs relatively quickly over a five, six month period. But then there's another 10 million. And those are a lot harder because those are people who have been laid off because their business decided to use this as a time to rationalize, decide, you know, went out of business 
doesn't have customers returning. And that's when you enter phase three, which I call the slog. And that could take many years. So instead of the unemployment rate falling by a percentage point per month, it falls by a percentage point um, per year. In other words, pre-election, I don't, I think we probably will see good economic data. I don't think we'll be able to tell whether the optimists are right about a V-shaped recovery or the pessimists are right, because the beginning will look like a V. The question is, how far do we get in the recovery before it all slows down? That's what I'm worried about. Ed? So, that, I mean, that's a really interesting scenario that sort of brings up all kinds of possibilities. Um, the most worrying, of course, being that Trump can, can um, proclaim the things over and it's over because of him uh, roughly uh, in the sort of build-up to November the 3rd. Um, how would you, if you were advising the Biden campaign, how would you advise them to parry that, to counter that Trump triumphalism? That Well, we we're already hearing it, but we'll be hearing it 10 times louder if your, if your stage three scenario is playing out on that timetable. Yep. So you know, one thing is just to point out where the economy is. You know, people were giddy on Friday when the unemployment rate was 13.3%. You know, it doesn't matter the order in which it got there, the sequence. It is 13.3%. That's an enormously high um, unemployment rate. So one is to point out the situation. Two, I don't think you can get that far with this, but you could try to point out the ways in which President Trump has made decisions that helped cause that to happen and has some direct responsibility for it. The strongest arguments there are in his mishandling of the virus, the lack of testing, the complacency early on. But the most important isn't arguing about the numbers and are they good or are they bad? It's arguing that you're going to have a plan to make things better and to understand and communicate that wherever we are in November, it's not satisfactory, it's not good enough. And, you know, here's the set of things I'll do um, to make it better. So that forward-looking debate, not just, you know, arguing over the economic data, I think is the most important. What do you expect from the Trump administration between now and then to help them tee up this uh, uh, narrative of recovery, such as um, more stimulus. Yeah, they've, the Trump administration has been a little bit trapped in complacency. They really want to cheerlead the recovery. They really want to say everything is fine. And then there's some tension between that argument and calling for big steps to help improve the economy. And so they have, in my judgment, erred on the side of everything's great, aren't we amazing, therefore we don't need anything else, and have erred on the side of thinking that additional fiscal measures would be admitting weakness and a sign of weakness. And that's the dangerous trap they're in. So I don't think they have much of an answer on a going forward basis to what they would do to speed economic growth or create jobs. They can look backward and say, oh, we did a great tax cut. We did great deregulation. We could argue about those. But going forward, I mean, you know, raising the deduction for meals, uh, business meals from 50% to 100%. I mean, they're talking about ideas like that. No one, no one thinks that's economically consequential. 
I mean, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, one area where that's sort of coming to a head is the so-called this, this fiscal cliff that's coming up. Um, well, you know, for want of a better term, the ending of many of the benefits that were included in the in the bill passed late March. Um, so the enhanced unemployment benefit will expire at the end of July. States and municipalities are, you know, running out of money. They're going to have to make deep cuts. Um, and they can't, you know, put all the cuts into reducing the size of police departments. They're going to be cutting across the board. Um, that's something that McConnell um, and, and others are opposed to renewing, um, hence the cliff. Uh, Democrats are in favor of it. How, how strongly should the Biden campaign argue for, for that? And should, and should, it, should it be um, configured differently? And I think that, you know, one of the big criticisms of it is that $600 a week enhanced unemployment is, is more than something like three quarters of the people were earning who are receiving it. That's a, a weak, a political weakness. Yeah. So just in terms of what the economically right thing is, and I'd like to think that's the, the politically right thing, is you need to focus both on the short run and on the medium and long run recovery. So in the short run, the biggest threat to the expansion is that unemployment insurance goes away entirely. I agree $600 is too high. So finding a different framework, something in between zero and 600 would be the right thing to do. If states and localities did the type of contraction they'd have to do without getting additional aid, that would take a year's growth off of the economy, um, maybe more. So that's immediately what needs to be done. But you're going to still have all these people that have permanently lost their jobs or working in industries that have shrunk are going to need to find something new. And so there's a longer rebuilding and reinvestment, whether it's infrastructure, whether it is, you know, training community college and the like, that won't be in the next bill that Congress passes. That's something that Biden should certainly, and he is, talking a lot about um, because that's what you'd want to do next year. Well, and I think that gets us into the, 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 the heart of this discussion, which is, you know, perhaps in January, if, if we were having this discussion, we said what's going to be central to a Biden victory or not, you might say it might be Trump or Trump scandals or something else. But clearly, whether you have 10 million people unemployed or 20 million people unemployed, uh, uh, you know, what the nature of the recovery from the recession is, economic anxiety is going to loom large over this election. And the vision that the candidates offer for the next four years, and particularly for next year, is going to become uh, determinative for the votes of a lot of people. And so the question, you know, I mean, you know, there's a tendency, you know, among Democrats to come up with very long lists of things. But I remember in the Clinton administration, one wag with whom I worked used to say that we were really good at coming up with a thousand reasons to do something, but never just one. Um, and, you know, you can't, you know, we can, we can overwhelm people, but, you know, is it job creation? And if so, what is that? Is it, is, is that infrastructure? Uh, how do you deal with this issue of economic anxiety that predated this low savings rates, low 
uh, 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 resources for retirement uh, for people? Uh, how do you deal with issues that have come up that are related, like, um, uh, you know, we've, we've had a healthcare crisis and an unemployment crisis at the same time, and that's revealed some real fractures and flaws within our healthcare system. What, what would you prioritize? What would you say, if I'm Joe Biden, I'm out there and I'm going to say, these are the three big things I want to do in, in 2021? Yeah, so... Well, thank you for giving me three. I was afraid you were going to only give me one, uh, David. No, it, it's hard because even prior to COVID, there were lots of causes of our economic problems, and there was not a magic bullet. It's something that one needs to address in a comprehensive manner. In terms of um, you know, Biden, if he were elected and has a Democratic Senate, he will probably have one big shot at fiscal legislation. He could do that under the reconciliation rules, which would allow it to be 50 votes in the Senate, so there would be no filibuster. And we will probably still be in a very, very serious economic situation. And so that's something he's going to need to do in his first couple months. I would then say, doing this, you need to do two things. One, make sure you're doing everything you can for the crisis now. But two, make sure you're also doing things that are going to matter um, for the longer term. So in terms of three priorities, one would be to take all the emergency measures and put them on autopilot for the rest of time with automatic stabilizers with triggers. Every time the unemployment rate rises, you expand unemployment insurance, you expand Medicaid matches, anytime it falls, you undo those. So that gives you your emergency response. And if things last longer and get worse, he doesn't need to come back to the well because that's already written into the law. Number two is um, climate change. I think that's just one of the very biggest issues that we face. There are ways you can do green jobs and investment and the like. I also think putting a price on carbon is a really important part of that. And there's been you know, a growing desire for that. I don't think it's been diminished a lot by recent events. And then number three is healthcare, um, as you said, remains one of the biggest problems that and challenges this country faces it is a big source of inequality as well and you know, would make sure to bundle that together in. Um, and now I guess I'm cheating because I think we also need a lot of infrastructure and training to deal with the demand shock. So um, I guess we're, I'm now up to five. But I tell them, don't, you know, don't do just three because this is your one big shot. Try to tr make make it count. Get as much as done possible. Because you know, with Obama, we thought we could come back, and you know, we had sixty senators or fifty nine, depending on which month you're looking at. And so it wasn't a crazy assumption of us at the time. He's going to have, in the best case, I don't know, fifty three senators. I'm not sure what number of Democratic senators. So he has he has one big fiscal shot. Uh, the um, situation prior to COVID, 
you know, back in those misty days when the South Carolina primary was happening and, um, and Biden was um, taking the nomination, or take, de facto taking the nomination, he wasn't really seen as a, an economic candidate. He was talking about trumping aberration, restoring America's soul. It was more the sort of moral, um, sort of national feeling of his candidacy than an economic one. And, and other candidates, not just ones on the left, but uh, other candidates were giving a much stronger emphasis to the economics um, of the situation. COVID presumably has given Biden a chance to radicalize what he's suggesting without sounding too radical because the situation has changed, the facts have changed. Um, and issues like inequality have been brought out and crystallized, uh, I think, um, and I think opinion polls sort of back this up to some degree by the pandemic. Do you think that the framing of the, this four or five shot um, sort of bill that you're talking about should be more radical than, than we're hearing? So, first of all, I think some of your comments on what Biden was like, you know, in February are a bit of an optical illusion. If you compared his proposals to Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, John Kerry, Al Gore, they were much larger, more ambitious, more progressive on minimum wage, tax increases on the rich investments in you know, education, et cetera. Um, they only looked small compared to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who were massive compared to not just anything ever proposed, but even massive compared to what any other country in the world currently does. So he's always had a very ambitious economic agenda. Um, in terms of how to package and describe it, I'm not the world's biggest expert in that. So I don't know if you want to say it's a radical change or you know, a moderate, reasonable continuation of what we've been doing. I'd love to see him build a bipartisan coalition and get bipartisan support. He genuinely does have good relationships and understanding on the other side of the aisle. But you know, I, if that doesn't happen, I'd rather see him do what's right than, you know, emphasize a, a sort of procedural process answer and limitation to what he does. You know, picking up on Ed's question, I, you know, I think within the Beltway and within the sort of political chattering class, you get the, a discussion about centrist Democrats versus progressive Democrats and uh, sort of the way the Democrats have conducted economic policy, both in the Clinton years and, and in the Obama years, versus a new way and whether we should see old faces or new faces. And, I, and, I, and I, you know, to sort of boil it down to the core issue, and I think Ed touched upon it, I think there's a growing awareness that this, this sort of inequality tsunami that's sort of been building steam over the course of the past 40 years, as has Democrats contribute to it as well as Republicans, um, and that we need to address some of those core issues. We need to somehow find a way that we step away from looking at GDP and markets as a primary metric and find a way that we look, find some metrics that, you know, um, are, are reflected in, you know, benefits throughout society. So, the question is, 
Do you think a change is in order? And if so, what should be different about the, a Biden administration approach to economic issues than perhaps an Obama administration or a Clinton administration approach to economic issues? Yeah. So, you know, for Democrats, they've wanted to do a lot about inequality. And I think they have done a medium amount about inequality. And the difference between the lot and the medium is the political constraints, a lot of it from Republicans in Congress. If you look at President Obama, um, you know, a moment ago, I was saying his agenda was less ambitious than the people running for president this time around. His actual accomplishments were a larger reduction in inequality due to the tax and transfer system. And this is largely the Affordable Care Act, but also higher taxes on high-income households than you saw any president do since um, Kennedy, if not earlier. The problem is that inequality widened enormously. And what he did with taxes in the Affordable Care Act undid a portion of that rise, but only a portion of that rise. Joe Biden is somebody who likes to get things done. He is much more interested in getting half a loaf than saying, well, I tried to get eight loaves, even if you're all now starving to death. And you know, so to some degree, what he does is going to be less a function of his own ideas about how to deal with inequality and what, you know, instead it'll be what the, what the Congress can do. Um, you know, as much as they can do, as ambitious as they can do, he is not going to be the constraint on that. He's going to be the one pushing it forward. Ed, last question. Uh, so we haven't mentioned the global economy and America's view of it and role in it. And of course, one of the really big changes that's happened in the last few years is that Republicans have become skeptical on tr Trumpian on trade. Um, we haven't mentioned China. I presume, as, a, as an economist, somebody who believes in Ricardian um, uh, theory of trade, that you would like to see open trading systems supported. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a very, very strong anti-China sentiment across the board, Democrats as well as Republicans, and a strong demand for decoupling, enhanced by COVID-19 and the knowledge of our vulnerability to, to supply chain, medical supply chains, etc., um, what, what would be the optimal economic policy? And is the politics in any way going to permit that? Yeah, this, this is, yeah, the views about China and the United States are bipartisan and widely held. You know, I personally think decoupling would be bad for the U.S. economy, especially since we'd be doing it alone and Europe is not decoupling from China. And so it would mean a lot of trade diverted rather than created in a different way. So what I'd like to see is, you know, insofar as you have that anti-China energy, to channel it towards different goals and use different means to achieve those goals. The goals should not be how much American stuff China buys. It should be, is China abiding by the rules and treating international trade, international investors, fairly. And the means of bringing about that goal should be through the WTO. So we'd appoint um, appellate justices, uh, judges there, rather than try to impede the WTO. And working together with our allies. So rather than waging trade wars with every country in the world, we would focus that energy 
on China. So if there was a multilateral, plurilateral focus on China, and it focused on legitimate things that all countries could get behind, like China needs to abide by the rules, rather than focus on how many soybeans or Boeing jets they buy from the United States, which is not something you could build a coalition with Germany um, to get China to buy more stuff from the United States. You can build a coalition with Germany to get China to abide by the rules. So the, the energy, I would just love to see it rechanneled in a more productive direction than what we've seen in the last couple of years. Just to, be, just to be clear, that does mean rejoining the TPP, right? I would certainly love to see us rejoin the TPP. I'm not predicting that's happening anytime soon, but I think that would help accomplish our goals vis-a-vis China. Well, thank you very much for that. I, you know, clearly, with the, the number of economic issues that are out there and the importance of those issues and the depth of the crisis that we're in, uh, n- nothing could be more important to our discussions. And uh, we are very fortunate to have had uh, this time with you today, Jason, perhaps sometime in uh, the future. We'll be able to get you back here and continue the discussion Uh, We're going to continue here at Deep State Radio talking to uh, the best minds we can find. Jason is certainly one of them. You may recall that a couple of weeks ago we had Gene Sperling here talking about his book. We had Ricardo Hausman here on on, um, Monday. Uh, And in uh, about 10 days we will be having uh, Joe Stiglitz, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, also joining us. This will continue uh, because we do want to Uh, emphasize these issues and uh, 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 explore them further. We will be hard-pressed to do it with the kind of clarity and thoughtfulness that we did it today with Jason, because Jason is one of the very smartest and most important economists that are out there, uh, and I hope people are listening to him. So thank you, Jason. Thank you very much, uh, Ed, for joining us for this. Hope you will join us for those others. And... uh, if you want more information on what we're doing here, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, uh, you can find uh, what we've done, what's upcoming, and uh, you can also uh, become a member and help support this kind of conversation. So thanks to everybody and stay healthy. <laughs>